Praise you, O God. Father, in light of Psalm 139, we recognize that your word searches us. It is a tool, that double-edged sword, dividing asunder between soul and spirit. It's quick and powerful. It's sharp. Lord, we recognize that before the mirror of your law, all men fall short of the glory that's required of your presence. We are all proven sinners in light of the standard of Christ's righteousness. And by this measure, Lord, you search us, you know us, and you find us to be wicked, corrupt, decrepit, hell-bent sinners. Yet that same word reveals to us not just our sin, but the path of salvation, the means of redemption, the miracle of regeneration. And by the Spirit's use of the proclamation of the word, it pleases you to raise us from the dead, that souls once languishing, in their trespasses and sins, dead and without hope of a future, awaken to the newness of life and the awareness of Christ, the knowledge of themselves, and hope of eternal life in the message of the gospel of the cross and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ by means of the Spirit's use of your holy word. So as that word is proclaimed in our ears today, I pray that you would bypass all the limitations that ordinarily blind us in our flesh and in our sin. That you might awaken our souls to love, to appreciate, and to comprehend the glories of your gospel. That you might, Lord Jesus, equip the tongue that bears your word today in spite of the, in spite of the frailty of the vessel that proclaims. So that what is shared and what is received is that which is the rightly divided and always enduring, powerful and effective, holy word of God. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. What a great grace and privilege it is to gather in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our King, Jesus Christ, and to open up His word, which is His eternal decree, to reinforce our souls, to strengthen us, and to equip us as saints for the work of the ministry, to encourage His church, and to call the lost to repentance and faith. Today we turn in our studies to Genesis 31. Turn with me as you're able to this chapter, which continues with the record of Jacob's life. Now we chronicle his confrontation with Laban, the corrupt father-in-law who has kept him in his employ and servitude for 20 years. But a shift is happening in Jacob's fortunes. He's about to put behind himself this season of life and put in front of himself Canaan land and the promises of Almighty God. In a moment, we'll read the word together. Today, today's sermon title is Jacob's Resolve. Resolve has to do with repentance. It's a decision of the soul. It's a commitment and a vow to do accordingly to what has been revealed. And Jacob has had God's word revealed to him personally, and that sovereign revelation has now translated itself into his commitment and vow and resolve to serve the Lord. The aim of this morning's message along these lines is to spotlight both the hand of God and the repentance of Jacob. The hand of God and the repentance of Jacob are evident in our text today. Would you stand out of reverence for God's holy word this day and behold in your ears the infallible word of Christ delivered to us in Genesis 31, 1 through 16. Here is the word of God. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, 
Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Verse 11, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I said, here am I, here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In highlighting the hand of God and the repentance of Jacob and the circumstances surrounding these events, we see in our context that Jacob has been long-suffering in service of his conniving father-in-law. The dirty trickster, Laban, has time and again gotten the upper hand in the negotiations and the battle of wits with his son-in-law, and he's exploited him through all the labor he's worth just about over these 20 years. But something has changed in the last six. You recall, the original agreement was Jacob worked seven years, an exorbitant price, one might think, for the right to marry one's daughter. Nevertheless, Jacob, it seemed a fleeting period of time to him because of his love for Rachel. But upon those seven years, come to find out, it wasn't Rachel that was given to him in that marriage ceremony, but Leah instead. Crestfallen, discouraged, and quite angry, as you could imagine. And Jacob says, what gives? Laban says, work for me another seven years. At the end of those 14, Jacob finally has a sit-down with Laban and says, it's not fair that I should work with you all this time, for you all this time, and not add to my household, my flock, and so forth, my holdings. Laban has said, basically, hey, you are my family. He considers him his servant. He doesn't see it the way Jacob does. Nevertheless, they come to one more agreement. And now, the speckled, the spotted, and the mottled, uh, that, that is those with deformities or mutations in the coloring of the flocks, the agreement is that those would go to Jacob. But once again, Laban does him dirty, and the covenant isn't as one assumed originally, as Jacob assumed originally, and now he finds himself in, uh, once again, the short end of the negotiation stick. But God, in spite of all these factors, nevertheless prospers Jacob. And this is where we see his hand. His hand, in spite of the conniving and the sinfulness of men, triumphs. And his hand not only triumphs in prospering Jacob under these conditions in servitude, but also triumphs in working on Jacob's heart all the while. 
working repentance and a softness and a sanctification in the soul of the covenant son. Jacob has been long-suffering in the service of his father-in-law, but this long-suffering isn't necessarily due to his virtue. Jacob has been hesitant to confront or to leave the confines of his relationship to Laban, not very nobly. Jacob appears to be a personality over these years, much more likely to appease others rather than take a stand for what is right. But today that is changing in our text. Far more impressive in this account, impressive, excuse me, in this account over the last 20 years is the long-suffering of the Lord with His servant and His significant son. This patience, that is God's patience toward Jacob, is due not to a hesitancy, not to anything that Jacob exhibited in his character flaws, but this long-suffering of the Lord is due only to His remarkable grace, His steadfast love, and the atoning mercy of Yahweh. The who is Yahweh? Yahweh is Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven's stairway revealed in chapter 28. The Lord who has promised and kept his promise to never leave Jacob, even as he languished these 20 years. True to his word, through 20 years, though 20 long years have passed with Jacob languishing in covenant apathy, God has nevertheless been with the patriarch. Now Jacob's character begins to demonstrate fruit of sanctification in our text today as we see a new chapter of covenant resolve open in his life. Jacob's growth in these ways is attended by the miraculous blessing of God in spite of his long-standing servitude. As we noted and as we've read, Jacob has increased in flocks and wealth, prospering despite the exploiting schemes of Laban. The tables have turned. By this means, Jacob has inadvertently despoiled. That means he has acquired in God's justice that which once or much of what once belonged to Laban. He has inadvertently despoiled his self-serving master. Eventually, Laban begrudgingly surrenders the upper hand. Laban is eventually warned in his own dream not to harass Jacob any longer. God himself warns him of this. The one-time master seeks Jacob's favor as events continue to unfold. As with Abraham and Abimelech, you may recall this from chapters 20 and 21, though Jacob enters the land of Paddan Aram in subservient fear, he proves to be the greater party in the end, as men of influence seek to be in his good graces via covenant treaty. Jacob's experience not only parallels that of Abraham, who went before him as grandfather, but it also parallels the experience of of all true covenant sons and daughters, you and I. Perhaps we'll close with this verse as well. But Revelation 5, 9 through 10, declares one phrase pulled from that text, quote, You, these are the people who have been redeemed singing to their Lord and Savior, quote, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jacob, the one-time servant for 20-some years, suffering under the exploitative policies of Laban. And the end serves in something of a priestly role. In the end, he is sought after by Laban for his favor because it is quite clear that God has blessed him and Laban has suffered some justice along the way. And as a result, the guy who used to be fearful, hesitant, apathetic, passive, is now stepping into his own, into his calling, obedient to the Lord, and taking some initiative as the patriarch 
he was originally called to be. So compare this to Abraham. Do you recall in chapter 20? He enters the land and there's an interaction with Abimelech. And Abraham's fearful. He pretends that his wife is his sister because he's scared of this guy. This guy's a superior authority in the mind of Abraham, not in the mind of God. In the mind of God, Abraham was the very one whom he anointed and appointed to bear the covenant hope for future generations. Abraham was not living like a covenant son. He was living in subservient fear, fearing Abimelech, the people of the nation, those who apparently on the outside had more power than he did. But something changed. God revealed, God confirmed his promise in the birth of Isaac. And at the close of chapter 21, we have Abimelech then coming to Abraham, seeking his favor. The tables turn. The guy who was at one point afraid because he didn't realize the promises of God, now is growing in faith because of God's word confirmed in his own experience. And now he's beginning to act as according to the promises of God. And this is a pattern for you and I to learn from. It is so easy in our lives to live and interact in a culture that is hostile to our values in a way uh, that is more like a victim than someone who is a ruling and reigning conqueror with our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us more often identify as a victim of our circumstances rather than a future heir of this entire globe? The meek, the scriptures say, will inherit the earth. Do you believe it? Jesus Christ was meek, yet he rose from the dead, defeating the grave and our sin. And we are in him. If you are a true covenant son and daughter, that's the greater message of Jacob's experience. And it gives us great encouragement as we behold it. Let me give you a heading and let us look at the text a little more closely today. The heading is as follows. What is revealed when, and then four subheadings. What is revealed when the house of Laban speaks? The house of Laban speaks in Genesis 31, 1 and 2. That's the testimony of Laban's sons. It reveals something. Secondly, we'll explore what is revealed when the Lord speaks. This happens twice, verse 3 and in verses 11 through 13. And then thirdly, let us consider what is obvious and revealed when Jacob speaks, the patriarch, in verses 4 through 10. And then at the close of our passage, the house of Jacob speaks in verses 14 through 16. That's the testimony of Rachel and Leah. As I was studying this, it occurred to me that there's some, one of these kind of biblical patterns of symmetry, a chiastic structure, which refers to a Greek letter that has a particular shape that focuses your attention, focuses your attention on the center, if you recall. So think of the voice or notice how the four-voice dialogue occurs in a chiastic pattern. First of all, the house of Jacob, I'm sorry, the house of Laban speaks. Secondly, the Lord speaks. Thirdly, Jacob speaks. Fourthly, the Lord speaks again. And fifthly, the house of Jacob speaks. This sort of draws our attention by the symmetry and the way it's structured to a change that's happening in Jacob, sandwiched between the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God goes before Jacob's speech and after Jacob's speech, and it therefore is responsible, you can kind of even see in the shape here, for Jacob's change of heart and his resolve, hence the change in his soul that we witness. Number one, what is revealed when the house of Laban speaks? Verses 1 and 2, we have this record. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying the following, quote, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And then verse 2, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. The house of Laban speaks. Now, there isn't much recorded of the, and we haven't even met these other sons of Laban until this point. 
but their words carry a lot of weight with them. And first of all, let us notice a contrast. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's a recurring pattern. It's a recurring theme in the book of Genesis, as Moses records. And we see it coming to the fore again. And it is this. There is a distance. There is an eternal separation between and a stark contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Just recall that famous text that is absolutely central to the entire theme of Scripture and binds it together as a seed flowering into the hole. Moses records the Word of God in Genesis 3.15 with the following. I will put enmity, that means strife, tension, that means anger, hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the, to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Were Laban's sons according to the seed of the serpent? That is, did they exhibit the kind of attitude, behavior, heart condition that was akin to the fall or akin to redemption? Well, akin to the fall. You see it in their jealousy and their covetousness and so forth. Meanwhile, Jacob was a covenant son. He was literally the seed of the woman, called to bear forth the hope and promise to the next generation of the Messiah to come that would be born of his family lineage. So here's that tension that was prophesied all the way back from the earliest days of the garden. Jacob's sons are angry with Jacob. Why? Because Jacob, as far as they can tell, has taken all that was our father's. He represents a threat to us. Our fathers, and from our father's house, he has gained all this wealth. You can kind of follow their logic. If this is allowed to continue, we won't have anything. Jacob will take all our inheritance. We'll be left with nothing. And so they feared God's favor on this man, and they made war with him in a sense. Or they chose, or they identified him as their enemy. They were not in covenant. They did not seek Jacob as a covenant representative and ask of him his experience directly with the word of God spoken to him and revelatory dream. If the sons of Laban had had soft hearts and if they were interested in the issue and in, in the real challenges of life, they would not have this short-sighted materialistic view, but would seek to learn from Jacob what God's promise was for salvation for all who would trust and believe in his covenant. But no, they didn't do that. Instead, they chose to set themselves at odds as enemies against the servant of the Lord, Jacob, the covenant son. And thus we have this seed contrast. We also have a covenant contrast that's evident in the house of Laban speaking. Think of it this way. There were covenants made with Laban. Jacob and Laban had numerous agreements. In fact, Jacob says here that they've changed like 10 times. Each agreement for wages would be something of a covenant. An arrangement, agreement between two parties. But there's a stark contrast between the agreement of Jacob and Laban and the agreement between Jacob and his God, Yahweh, revealed to him. The one is steadfast, immovable, never changing, always certain, and his promises are sure and everlasting, and you can bank and build on them forevermore. That is true covenant hope. The other is this fleeting and fickle arrangement that is fraught with manipulation and conniving and twisting and turning and, and uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of one or the other and so forth. And this illustrates to us the difference that is Laban versus Bethel between covenant relationships between sinners and covenant relationships between the sinless one, Jesus Christ. 
we contrast the promise and relationships born of a fallen world with the surpassing covenant hope of our relationship through Jesus Christ. In his providence and in his discipline, God allowed Jacob to entertain covenant opportunities with Laban for 20 years. But the fruit of these promises proved rotten in the end. Jacob thought that he could greatly benefit in some ways by making covenant relationship with Laban. But in spite of his trial and error over 20 years, it proved fruitless and rotten and only sowed seeds of hardship and turmoil and despair and discouragement. And in this was a lesson for Jacob and you and I as the reader, that true communion is always and only found in Christ. This goes all the way down to the basic relationships, even marriage itself. Paul would say that you must marry, only marry in Christ. Why? Because true communion, true relationship is established on the covenant foundation of Jesus Christ. We are not to be unequally yoked, the apostle would go on to say. That is, to trust in mere human relationships to secure our future. Promises, provisions, conditions are out there. There's all kinds of things that you can sign up for, of agreements that could be made, that contracts that could be forged with the world and the enemy and the, in, in the sinfulness of the fallen world. But each and every one, if they are not based upon the principles of Scripture, if they do not serve or if they do not exist under the authority of Christ, represent a relationship, an agreement, a promise, an arrangement that is based on nothing, and in the end, the fruit will prove rotten. There is a covenant contrast between agreements made with Laban and the agreement that God made with Jacob at Bethel. What was that agreement? We'll study it in a little bit uh, more detail in a moment. Basically, it was this. I am the God of the stairway connecting heaven and earth. And at this altar, what do you commemorate, Jacob? The fact, the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you, but will fulfill the promises that I have made to you and to your forebears who went before you. Thirdly, the house of Laban speaks of a values contrast. There's a seed contrast. We mentioned that. There's a covenant contrast. And finally, there's a value contact, contrast. What's most important to the sons of Jacob? Well, kids, I have a question for you. I'm going to read this again, and you tell me, or you answer, see if you can answer this question. Which one of the Ten Commandments did Jacob's sons break? Okay? Which one of the Ten Commandments did Jacob's sons break? Commit adultery. adultery. Good guess. Let me read this and see if you guys can uh, figure it out. Quote, Jacob has taken... All that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. You can put Laban and his sons into this category. Which of the Ten Commandments did they break in this confession? Anyone know? They were angry with Jacob because he was getting richer. Anyone know which of the Ten Commandments they broke? That, that is correct. Very good. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. This illustrates a difference in values. Laban and his sons represent the antithesis of the values that the seed of the woman trusts. Material wealth or the things that this world promises are everything. They're of utmost importance to those who live by the short-sighted pleasures of this life or by the appetites and the experience 
of merely their material and their temporal existence. The desperate envy, covetousness, jealousy, and hostility are the marks of those who break the Ten Commandments, and especially the Tenth, Thou shalt not covet, and they illustrate the values of the seed of the serpent. Those who live their life and whose hearts are aligned with the devil, they place their hope and they place their investment in that which corrupts, thieves can steal, Jacob can take away from their father, and rust will corrode and so forth. This is a sharp contrast to what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 20-21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And of course, in contrast to treasures on the earth. Laban and his sons, all they cared about, top of their priority list, was the treasures on this earth. They failed to see that the reason their flocks were languishing and Jacob's were increasing is because this was God's covenant son. In light of that truth, they they should have sought to be in favor with the Lord by asking uh, Jacob, who is this God that is blessing your flocks? But instead, no, they had resentment and envy and jealousy, covetousness. And they hated Jacob because he was increasing and they felt that he was a threat. Why? Because they laid up for themselves treasures on this earth, treasures that Jacob could threaten or a thief, or a robber, or a fire, or rust, like Jesus says. What does Jesus go on to say? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Laban and his sons, their treasure was in their flocks. That's where their heart was. And this test, in the house of Laban speaking, illustrated where they stood. What is revealed when the house of Laban speaks? There's a contrast between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Covenants made... Uh, just in a mere human way versus covenants made under God's authority. And finally, values, your treasure, what's most important. Is it the things of this earth or is it the things that will outlast this earth? That is what was revealed in the testimony of the house of Laban. Secondly, let us consider what's revealed when the Lord speaks. God interrupts this dialogue in verse 3 and then uh, J. Jacob uh, quotes him in verses 11 through 13. Notice verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The word of Laban cannot be trusted. It changes ten times. He is not to be banked on or counted on. There are no good fortunes promised through mere sinful covenant arrangements. However, the word of God is steadfast, immovable. It never changes. And so God has re- is reiterating to Jacob right here in this passage what he has revealed to him 20 plus years ago and before that to his uh, dad, Isaac. Let's go back to two of those passages just to record the consistency of the Lord's voice. In chapter 26, verses 23 through 25, this word was given to Isaac in Beersheba. From there he went up to Beersheba, speaking of Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. How did Isaac respond? So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. 
This happened again in the next generation. As you recall in Genesis 28, here's another place, another person. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. He came to a certain place, this is 28.10, and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head. You recall the dream, heaven's staircase touching earth. At the close of that dream, Yahweh speaks and says, Behold, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And likewise, what does Jacob do after receiving this revelation? He also makes a memorial. He steps up that pillar, he pours the offering oil, and he names the place, the house of God, Bethel. He makes a vow, and he says, so that I come again, or in verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Listen closely, because this pertains to our experience. How many times over those 20 years do you think Jacob was tempted to doubt God's promises? Are you really with me? Laban has just done me wrong for the 10th time. Are you really with me? There's nothing but strife and dysfunction in my home. Are you really with me? I'm basically a slave. And I've been this way for two decades, and I don't see my fortunes improving. Where are you, Lord? He might ask in his moments of weak faith. I thought you promised me that I would be a patriarch. I thought I was to be fruitful in a land of my own possession. But here I am as a slave to my corrupt father-in-law. It would be tempting to doubt the promises of God. But as the scriptures say, the faith that is required of us and the Holy Spirit sovereignly gives does not walk by sight. If we look at the things around us and merely take into account what is probable given our circumstances, we will surely doubt. But if we consider God's word more powerful and a better foundation to count on and to build our life upon uh, than we do our own experience, and we will begin to see things from God's perspective. And this was a change in Jacob's heart. And God was intervening graciously to reiterate to him again, 20 years later, the same promises. And now they were coming to pass. In our text, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Exodus and Emmanuel. These are two things in just one verse that God reiterates or he establishes. They are patterns that will be repeated through all of covenant history. The first is a calling in Exodus. I will bring you out of the land of bondage and into the land of promise. One reason for Jacob sovereignly being in the land of bondage, so to speak, for 20 years is because his life is a picture of our own experience. Though, the, though we were captive, slaves to sin, as we've mentioned before, in years and years of bondage, unable to better our situation or save ourselves. Nevertheless, God, Emmanuel, God with us, was faithful. And in his promises and in his time, he delivered us. And so Jacob is delivered. He had an Exodus calling. He was called to return to the land, 
to go back to that place of promise and to do so in faith. Um, the other day on Tuesday, we had a little challenge for the men and boys. We walked all the way across the lake and back, and I went through, you know, I'd planned this little excursion as an object lesson for endurance, you know. And at first I thought, well, the weather looks pretty nice. Maybe this will be too easy. I'll, let's go the long way. Well, as it turns out, on Tuesday night, the wind whipped up at like 20 below wind chill. It had to have been at least. There was slush all over the place. And a few of the kids had to be hauled in sleds. Some had to turn back because their little legs couldn't quite make it all the way. And I think if anyone shared my experience, the next two days he dealt with a little soreness in the calves. We made it, but it was a journey of some challenge. And what is pictured in this is something that's often lost in our experience about the trial of, or the object lesson of a difficult journey. Life is like this. And, you know, in a few weeks, contrast to that little jaunt across the lake, my family's planning on stepping into an airplane. And uh, if the kids are in a good mood, probably gets a little shut-eye, wake up in a couple hours, and boom, you're in Tampa Bay, Florida. Thousands of miles in just a few hours. And traveling is too easy. I mean, traveling is something we do to relax. Traveling is something that we associate with, with uh, vacation. Not so at the time when Jacob lived. Life was like a journey, more like crossing on foot and the wind whipping at your face in a 20 below night across a frozen lake riddled with slush and all of the you know, difficulty that the elements would give. But someone who realizes that that calling to cross the lake of life, as it were, it's not some harebrained idea from a pastor who's trying to, you know, um, trying to do a little bit better than the last guy who came up with the challenge for us to do, but the calling actually comes from the sovereign God who has promised to carry you all the way through life and back. That knowledge and that assurance of the soul makes all the difference in the world. We have an exodus calling, a calling out of sin through sanctification, but it's a calling unto a place of promised, full, manifest reconciliation and the blessings and glories and benefits of salvation for every believer. But it is not easy. The Christian life is not like a plane ride to Florida. It's like a long journey on foot across an entire continent or something like that. And so as, but there is sufficient grace for the sojourner. Sufficient grace for the sorrows that we've been studying from Psalm 119. This is a lesson that Jacob was learning, and it's a lesson that we need as well. Two things. We are called out, and that journey is not easy, but we are promised Emmanuel, God with us. You will return to the land, and I will be with you. This is an implicit, or this is an explicit promise to Jacob, but it's an also an implicit command to the enemy. Laban... Let my people go. Jacob, I will be with you. Laban is much like Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh, Laban represent the sin in the old life. And God declares with authority through the gospel, through the word, and through his process of sanctifying his people. Let my people go. And sometimes it takes a good long 20 years. Sometimes it takes a good long slog, like crossing that lake, only much, much longer. And But we can trust and we can bank upon the one who has sovereignly called us out of Egypt and promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. The house of Laban speaks. 
And then the Lord speaks, assuring us of Exodus and Emmanuel, as he assures Jacob. There's also sovereign provision that the Lord, that is revealed in this message as well. Not only does God call Jacob out, but he calls him out as a rich man. Jacob didn't think this was going to happen, but notice verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all that the goats or all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. There was sovereign provision for Jacob. It took a long time, 14 years. He didn't have much of any wages except two wives. And, but after these six, God restored to him over and abundantly what was unjustly confiscated by way of uncompensated labor under Laban. Similar to Job. Job was called to go through a time of great loss. And he was down to his very bones and his physical health, and to the very depths of his soul's anguish, the trial of Job commenced. But in the end, what did God do? He demonstrated both his power to, uh, to, in, to keep his son through trial and his glory to lavish on him promises and provision and an overflowing gracious blessing in the end. This is the same for us. Heaven is opulent, overflowing with riches. You know, the measures of, of wealth through the ages have been identified with gold. And the picture of the golden streets of heaven is, is such that that which we treasure, because it's so rare in our experience, is so overflowing and plentiful in heaven that the very streets are paved with it. And this is the future promise that gives us hope, that our striving and sorrows and difficulty and endurance is not in vain. Paul said that he presses forward for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And this high calling is worth it. It is measured, it is a pictured in great reward. Chief among these rewards is sweet communion with our God. And that relationship with Jesus Christ, heaven's staircase, what would you give to be personally visited by God as an angel? What would you give for that? Would 20 years of sorrows or 20 years of victimization in unjust contracts, be worth that exchange? Yes, of course it would be. And this is what happened with Jacob. He experienced the blessing and benefit of a personal relationship with the Lord. And we, saints, experience a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When he changes our hearts, calls us his own, regenerates us, and promises us heaven eternal. Don't get so pietistic, you know, sometimes it's popular, like suffering in and of itself is just a virtue. I mean, suffering has purpose, and there is a call to suffer. But get the full picture of what the Bible promises. Suffering is, in the Bible, is not something that's arbitrary or capricious. Suffering has an end, and the end is glory. And the glories that God has promised those who love Him overflow in abundance such that you can nev could never ask or imagine. Ours is a great reward. Jacob learned this. It was in spite of the odds. It was even in the midst of injustice. Nevertheless, God prospered his servant. He can do the same and will do the same for his people of all ages. And sometimes that separation and enmity is on purpose so that God uses Jacob's life as a contrast. 
Laban, by all metrics, humanly speaking, is the greater party and has the upper hand. Nevertheless, Jacob prospers in spite of his servitude. Did not the same thing happen with Abraham and Lot? Lot chose why? The field, or why did Lot choose the fields of Sodom? Because they were luscious and fertile. And he thought, there my fox will explode. Abraham in faith set his eyes to the land of promise. Even though it was a wilderness, what happened? Abraham increased in wealth and riches and holdings, but the man who placed his bets on what the world could promise languished, barely hanging on to his soul by a thread in the wickedest city at that time, which eventually becomes an object lesson of hell to come when brimstone and fire rain down from God's just hand upon that wicked city. Abraham versus Lot, Laban versus Jacob, Daniel and his friends versus Babylon. You can see these juxtapositions, two things set aside beside one another to illustrate a contrast. You know, the last time this was really sharply illustrated to me in my own experience was at the abortion clinic. And I've heard others say this as well, and it was certainly true in our case. There are people on two sides of that issue. There are those who fight for the so-called right for the, of a woman to abort, that is, to murder their child. Those people don't come in 15-passenger vans. They come as uh, single people with, uh, you know, just an, a socialist agenda and some kind of activism and, I, and their false religion that the left serves up to them on a poisonous platter and they're out there screaming on behalf of what they think is right. On the other side of the street, there are those who are there with tears in their eyes and the word on their lips and families with multiple children. Which side of that street would you want to be on? One that has no legacy, no future, no next generation, but is fighting for the right to die and in the end will leave no lasting mark and legacy? Or on the other side, who has repented of their sin, perhaps they crossed that street in their own experience and then stood in faith of God's promises and said, yes, parenting is difficult. Nevertheless, children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And I'm going to fight for everyone and embrace everyone that God would so graciously give. And so you see, sometimes these sharp distinction, distinctions God sets up to illustrate that his way is just and his way is true and his way is blessing and in his way are the glories and promises and the overflowing benefits of living according to his sovereign design, as we talked about last week, for human sexuality and this world and the created order. And meanwhile, on the other side, you have what has rightly been called the culture of death. Over time, who will prosper? And this isn't a see I told you so celebratory triumph or anything. This is something that we recognize gives glory to God and must and should move us to plead with the lost to repent so they don't die childless or whatever in their trespasses and sins. And I'm just using that as an analogy. <clears throat> and these are times or these are things in our own experience and in the experience of the saints of old, which illustrate to us that when God speaks, He sometimes sets up these circumstances and a distinction between the godly and un ungodly to be a light and to shine for truth. And if that's our call, let's embrace it. If there's more and more hostility, if we feel like we're laboring in Laban's house, if we feel like we're at enmity with our culture, let's embrace it as an opportunity to shine the light and pray that there might be some 
that would one day seek like Laban eventually does to have favor and covenant with us because they see in the end that God has blessed us. And we can say at that point, it's nothing of me. This is God and this is his word. He's changed me. This is a mark of the work of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Nothing that I can boast. Turn to him. <clears throat> Place your faith in him. What else is revealed when God speaks? There's an Exodus calling in Emmanuel promise, there's sovereign provision. And finally and chiefly, there's Yahweh revealed himself. God shows himself in personal form, a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ, I, sub I submit. The technical word is theophany. God showing himself to his servant in a tangible way that he can see or interact with or experience with his own senses. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. This is the word of God to Jacob in a dream. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Who's speaking? The answer comes in 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. Who is the God of Bethel? That was Yahweh who stood over heaven's staircase, and Jacob was called to behold. And who is the God of Bethel? Who is heaven's staircase? That is Jesus Christ who prophesied to Nathanael, as we've said numerous times. From now on, you'll see the heavens opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yes, Jacob witnessed Jesus Christ. Jacob saw Jesus Christ revealed to him personally. This is one of the great privileges of all covenant children. They, are, they become into personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a life-transforming experience. If the word of God has been proclaimed in clarity and power, and if your heart has bowed before the message of the gospel, you, like Jacob, have experienced a personal, life-changing in interaction with Jesus Christ. And this is what is revealed when God speaks to his son. The patriarch speaks next, Jacob, and what we see in his and these next few points we'll probably cover in greater length at a future sermon. But chiefly what we see when the patriarch speaks is Jacob's repentance. Notice in verses 4, 5, and following, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. And he goes on to reveal to him, to, to them, his wives, the revelation, the word of God. He said, or God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore, bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And of course, he quotes God later when he says, Here I am, and see, lift up your eyes and see. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, return to the land of your kindred. Do you notice a change in Jacob? If you go back and just look over the dysfunction of the end of chapter 29, when there was all this hostility between the two wives, and they each offered their maidservant, Bilhah and Zilpah, to Jacob, in order to, in this competition of who can be his favorite wife, 
by, on the basis of who can have more children. And it got so bad that they're eventually haggling for time, intimate time with their husband, reducing Jacob to basically a prostitute. Jacob doesn't name a single one of his children, it would appear. Though women are running the show, he is absent in his role, passive in his call, not reminding, it would appear, during this time, his family of the promises of God, but languishing in covenant apathy. Something changes, however, from chapter 30 to the end of the chapter in chapter 31, which I submit is best described as repentance. Jacob finally rises to the occasion of spiritual leadership in his family. In stark contrast, to his negligence before. His wives who offered concubines, named all his children, and were in this knockdown, drag out, you know, a competition for his affections, they eventually answer as well. The house of Jacob speaks, and they submit to him. When his wives answer, in verses 14 and 16, it sounds like this. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Whatever God has said to you, do. A beautiful picture of submission. Something has changed. Order has been restored in Jacob's home. Jacob has pointed to God as the source for their provision and has pointed to his word as a source for their direction. And his wives now recognizing that he is speaking with the authority of the covenant son, they say, whatever God has revealed to you, we will follow. We will go on that very difficult trying journey that requires faith back to the promised land, away from the familiar surroundings of our father and all that we've known and been comfortably familiar with in our culture. We will do so. Order has returned to Jacob's home following his repentance, building his life and changing his tune and confessing his faith in the promises and word of God. Let's close by turning to Revelation 5 this morning. I've made the point in introduction and along the way that Jacob's experience is proleptic. That means it's like a picture of, what, of, a, of something else to come. And it does mirror our experience in many ways. God calls us out, as we said before, from sin, but he calls us unto glory and even to a place of authority and co-regency, that is, to rule and reign with him. And this is confessed in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 in a worship song. Notice in verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Pausing there. Very good. It's the son of Jacob. It's Jesus Christ. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and listen to their confession, Quote, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jacob, in his experience, goes from servant to priest. Laban eventually seeks his favor because he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of God's powerful, evident work in blessing uh, Jacob. I don't know whether Laban ever confessed his sin and truly believed, but he certainly recognized that he better change his tune lest he perish in the way. Likewise, kings are called to confess the same as we said last week, kiss the son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When you deal with God's covenant sons, you're dealing with one who is an heir to the world. Jacob eventually goes and recovers the vision, the promise to be the owner, the inheritor of the land of promise. And so you and I will be exalted to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We will be exalted and lifted up in resurrection to sit at the right hand of Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, Father, the majesty on high, ruling and reigning over the new heavens and new earth. This is the course. This is the purpose of God. This is the future that he has for us. And this is why we need faith. Because right now, depending on where you're at in that journey, you may feel much more like Jacob under the heavy hand of Laban than you do like a co-regent of Jesus Christ, a ruler alongside him. Nevertheless, the promises still remain. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has called you in your own exodus from sin unto the promised land of everything that his blood has purchased for your account, even eternal life. And Jesus Christ, heaven's staircase touching earth, the son of Jacob, his very name is Emmanuel. As we've confessed numerous times during this last Advent season, Emmanuel means what, kids? Shout it out. What is it? Very good. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises and provision that are available to us in Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our Emmanuel, who has called us out in our exodus from sin, from Egypt, the corruption, the victimization, and everything else, the injustices, the fallenness of this world, and all of the pain that attends our way unto eternal life and promise and ruling and reigning with you. Lord, we know that this will happen based upon not our merit, but upon your mighty work on Calvary. Our Lord, Savior, and Champion defeated the grave, and thus he will defeat every enemy that stands in between us and his promises. We confess this, Lord. We choose to uh, have our hearts be examined by the word of God and any areas where our faith has languished. We pray that you would bring conviction so we would repent of having too small of faith and a mind and instead put our hope and let our minds be renewed by the word of God itself, which declares to us that Jesus Christ is in us and with us and he, God with us, will ensure safe passage from this life unto life eternal if we but place our faith and invest our fortunes with him. Serve and follow our master and thank him for dying in our place and embrace the gospel and just worship him and praise him for changing our hearts. We, by his mercy, have been born again unto newness of life. But I pray that you would reinforce and strengthen us according to the proclamation of your word that we might endure and that we might do so joyfully, which is our strength, and in hope eternal, which is secured. We know this from those who've gone before, from the proclamation that you reiterate to us in your scriptures, and by your great faithfulness that has attended our way even this last year. Help us to remember these things, that we might stand when our faith is tried, and we might rejoice all the while, knowing that our Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and Victor. In his name we pray. Amen.